how to do this. <laughs> Anybody want to open in prayer? Thanks. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this day to come and, and learn about you and learn about Paul and God broaden our horizons on the New Testament so that when we dig into it on our own, it will make more sense. Thank you, God, for coming and starting your kingdom and, and for encouraging us to learn more. Amen. I think I'm going to close the door. I hope it doesn't prevent people from coming in late, but we can't have children giggling in the background when we're studying theology, right? Uh, <laughs> off-putting. This is serious. Yeah, this is serious stuff. All right, uh, so I thought, uh, again, trying to figure out how in an hour I can say what needs to be said or discuss what needs to be said to help you understand all of Paul's writings. Uh, it was a little daunting, and I thought, well, I could go over each book, and I thought that's about as boring as I can imagine. And so <clears throat> I thought maybe I could give you uh, a similar perspective on the go- on the on the letters that I that we did with the Gospels, rather than go each through each book um, book by book. We'd uh, rather just kind of look at kind of the uh, undergirding of the theology that Paul puts into his letters and how he went about uh, writing his letters. And that might help, I think, a little bit more if you're thinking about how you're going to read his letters on your own. So I thought we'd begin by showing how, because basically my big theory here is, is that all of the New Testament kind of fits into that diagram. And, uh, and kind of see how... Doing that can help us understand the the um, the letters a little bit better, um, and also I think make them a little bit more practical. Because I think a lot of times, well, maybe you can tell me if you have the same experience. But I hear people telling me um, they don't understand Paul because he's too kind of esoteric, kind of way up in the clouds a lot, especially in the first half of his letters. Do you hear that a lot? I know I get lost sometimes in the length of the sentences. Yes, yeah. Which relates to what? Yeah. That makes it a little more <coughs> difficult. And, and actually, in Greek, it's even worse. Oh. <laughs> okay. There's a what is it? Uh, Ephesians one three through eleven. All eight of those verses, one sentence. Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> then I could do that too. So, yeah. In English, we like to clean up the sentence structure. And I don't mean clean up like fix it like Paul was a bad writer or anything. It's uh, sentences didn't work exactly the same way as they work today um, in Greek grammar. So Paul wasn't doing anything wrong. It may have been a little bit unusual, but not wrong. They even have punctuation marks. Like Paul didn't have a period at the end of a sentence. So you have to kind of guess where it is. Yeah. So fun stuff. And as I was driving in here, I thought it might be good to do 1.1 and 1.2 in the opposite order. Because this the 1.2, the age, this age, the age to come language, uh, is uh, was very explicit and it's very easy to see. So um, we'll start there and then, and then we'll have a little discussion on Romans 8 and then we'll move on. Um, so Romans, Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says... 
We, however, do not speak a message of wisdom among the mature, uh, but not. Uh, I'm sorry. We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. Notice, remember that phrase: "this age" and "the age to come." <clears throat> but not the wisdom of this age, or of the ruler of this age, who is coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, the wisdom that has been hidden, and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And notice how this age shows up like three times, maybe four. And remember, that's the big division between this age and the age to come. This age is... I mean, if you ever look at Paul and and, uh, try to describe what this age is like, would you say that he has a very positive appraisal of this age or a negative? Negative. Yeah, right? (laughs) It's a very negative appraisal of this age. And this is the age to come. Yeah, who's who's the god of this age? Satan, right? Well, I guess in verse in chapter two here, it's it's uh, he's the ruler of this age. But then in in Second Corinthians four four, it's the god of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, and then uh, first first Corinthians, uh, sorry, Ephesians one nineteen to twenty three. Anybody want to read those those verses? That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Yeah. Thanks. So we have this present age and the age to come. It's a nice division, very Jewish division of history, with the Messiah being the break between those two divisions of history. But notice what Paul does here. I think this is really fascinating. Um, When do we get to experience the age to come? What is our first experience of the age to come in this passage? Can you see that? The power that ex- what was exerted. Oh, yeah. For his resurrection? Yeah. So this is the age to come, right here. Right? We, we get to. Ex- the power of the age to come came to earth when, he, when God rose Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus now continues to be uh, king over his church. He reigns in heaven now until he returns. So this is us. Uh, and, until he returns and we get to experience the age to come in its fullness. So we get a partial experience of the age to come now through the reign of Christ over his church. Uh, that's, that's verse 22. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there we go. And Paul, Paul has the exact same eschatology as Jesus, lo and behold. <laughs> Remember eschatology, this study of the end times, but we're using it more broadly to refer to um, everything from Jesus' first coming to second coming, kind of a historical orientation towards that. Any questions about that? All right, let's look at Romans, because I think 
This is one of my favorite passages, and it's it's really neat to see how Paul works this out. And I, I really believe this is Paul's attempt, to attempt. I think he succeeds in being uh, practical too. <laughs> Uh, anybody want to read uh, eighteen? Or ch- I'm sorry, Romans chapter eight, verses eighteen through twenty-five. I got that one. Thanks. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not on- not by its own choice, but by the will of the of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and redemption of our body. Uh, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are we were saved. But hope that that is seen is no hope at all. That is, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For hope, for hopes, for what? Who hopes? What he already? For who <laughs> hopes? Please. Yeah. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Thanks. Yeah, Paul, Paul has the tendency to get convoluted at times. In a very good and inspired, divinely inspired sort of way. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, like, like uh, the NIV kind of cleans this up a little bit. The anxious waits in either expectation. I assume that's NIV. That, yeah. Uh, that's the, what I have, and that's what I heard. Yeah. Myself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the, uh, if you were to read that in Greek, it would say something like, the anxious longing of creation eagerly awakes, uh, so, which grammatically you, you don't normally want to say it that way. It's not the longing that awaits; it's creation that awaits. But it's, he wanted to say it twice: the anxious longing of creation eagerly awaits, because he wants you to know how anxiously and how longingly it's waiting. Does that make sense? Uh, isn't that a lot of languages? You, you say it twice for rep- the repetition. Yeah, it's kind of like repetition. Yeah. So, it's it's kind of like, uh, well, it's kind of like, not that I have any personal experience with this, but childbirth, where for the joy set before you, you endure the pain of childbirth, because. Uh, uh, and you eagerly wait for the day when your child will come even though along the way things tend to be difficult. And so uh, so that's why a lot of times even he, I think Paul even talks about the, this, uh, the, uh, the age to come being kind of birthed out of the current age, and we're experiencing birth pangs of the trials in the midst of that. And so, uh, but in almost every verse here, you see references to this age and the age to come without ever really using that explicit terminology. And we could really go through almost every verse. Uh, in fact, verse 18, can we see both um, already and not yet? Remember, those are the other terms we talked about already here, what Jesus has already done, and then not yet is here. 
Like in verse 18, can you see both of them there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the glory that will be revealed is the... Which is the presence of Right. And that's kind of his theme for this these two paragraphs. There's the present sufferings and the glory that's yet to be revealed. And that's so already suffering. <laughs> but with hope and the glory that's yet to be revealed. So creation's now eagerly awaiting for the sons of God to be revealed. That's kind of a fascinating way to think about how um, we're going to be described in the new heavens and new earth. Children of God. Um and we're children of God now, but in a new way when Christ returns. And he's going to describe that in a little bit more detail. Uh, creation was subject to, refru- to frustration, not by its own choice, um, but subjected it in hope at the end of verse 20. In hope that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So we know the whole creation has been Oh, there it is. Uh, sorry. The old creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And then we ourselves, and I love this, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we inwardly wait, uh, we, we, inwardly, uh, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. When's our adoption as sons? The redemption of our bodies? The second coming. Now, aren't we children of God now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Already not yet. Already not yet. We get to when we rise again from the dead and have a body just like Jesus' body, then we will be sons of God fully. Right now we are we get to experience it in a spiritual way, but in the future we'll experience it in a physical way as well, if that makes sense. <clears throat> but notice how Paul's view of Paul's view of creation here, doesn't it seem a little bit more animated than what we normally view creation to be? I mean, do you think of the physical universe around you waiting for anything? <laughs> Not so much. Not so much, right. I mean, I mean it's the just kind of out of the seasons, you sort of sentimentalize, in your mind, kind of sentimentalize it or something. Yeah. But yeah, no. You don't expect the trees going, where's the rain? Right. Or something. Right. I mean, most of us have a very mechanical view of the world in that we view the world as a machine in operation. Mm -hmm. And we have engineers that study it, scientists that study it, and use it for our advantage. Um, But we don't view it as having personality. And it's interesting to me that Paul's not the only one that does this. Throughout the whole Old Testament, um, God speaks to creation and the creation responds... You know, God tells the oceans, stop here, don't go no further, and the creation says, okay. <laughs> but, oh, I'm trying to think, but it does, it does obey, but it, I don't remember seeing it say, you know, anywhere where it responds. Well, not yeah, in that particular verse in 104, I'm, uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 104, I'm not sure that the creation actually responds, but in, uh, like, Psalm 19... The heavens declare the glory of God. So the, the one I was thinking of is is when Jesus was talking about you know if they didn't shout Hosanna the rocks would right yeah. the trees of the field will clap their hands the rocks are going to shout for joy you know there's you now we could view them all as metaphors but um, I'm just not sure that's what Paul means by it. 
I just wonder if if um, the creation in his mind uh, had more of an animate nature than what we give creation, and and that that might sound a little a little weird, but we have to remember we we've come after the uh, scientific revolution and and rationalism and and. Uh, and we've come to uh, approach the world in a very mechanistic sort of way that it wasn't beforehand. Most people did not think about the creation that way before the Industrial Revolution, or, well, at least before the Scientific Revolution. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think sometimes we've missed it. And maybe it's a metaphor, but it's a pretty darn good one, and it's one that we ought to think about more often, I think. That's one of the things that Adam lost Maybe he was, maybe one of the things he was able to do, and we will, will be to interact that way. Mm-hmm. Which is why the ground was not going to yield the food for him as easily. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, that's speculation, pure speculation, but maybe that's one of the things we lost. Yeah. And that's why perhaps the picture shows up in a lot of mythology <coughs> and fairy tales and stuff. Something related to that shows up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some kind of a. It seems like every time we muck with creation, we muck it up. You know, animals get cancer now because they're so inbred. And thinking our food that comes doesn't have the flavor that it used to. What? I need to food these Mine does. (laughs) I mean, but you you hear people say organic food tastes a heck of a lot better. Mm-hmm. It's it's not an unfamiliar thought to me um, uh, from farm sort of place. I mean, a lot of people farm where I'm from, North Dakota. There's a lot of open land, lots of hunting, lots of that type of... And we often have a kind of reverence for nature mm-hmm. in those places. My dad wanted to be a forest ranger uh, until he realized they don't get paid anything. But Yeah, right. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, I've always kind of noticed, even in my own lifetime, the sort of decay that seems to happen. Um, just in the land itself with erosion and all sorts of natural occurrences, it's just, it's getting worse. Um, let alone, you know, how much we're, you know, turning it into almost unusable land. That mm-hmm. But yeah, I've always kind of noticed it seems to be getting Worse. Yeah, I, you know, it's, uh, we don't have time to go into this now, but one of the things I've been learning in the last year or so is just how how often the Bible presents creation as if it's designed to be um, a cosmic temple that is it's supposed to be the place of God's glory, glory like the Shekinah glory of the temple in the, in the Jerusalem temple. It was supposed to fill the whole earth. And that's what Adam was supposed to be doing, was to be taking the, the place of God's glory in the Garden of Eden and spread that to the ends of creation. <clears throat> and and it's very um, fascinating the, the way that the Bible speaks of this. I mean, even in the, at the, end, in the end of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth, you have this gigantic holy of holies that just drops down out of heaven and onto the earth. It's a perfect cube. 
and uh, uh, it's the Holy of Holies, filling the entire creation. And uh, that's the that I think is the is is part of the reason why the uh, God and the Scriptures describe creation in such animate ways as having almost a personality, is because it is designed to be the place where God's glory rests. The creation is designed to give praise to God. And we get to join in it. That's what I love about this. Not only so, but we ourselves, have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for our adoption of sons. And notice it's our groaning and our awaiting is tied in intimately to the groaning of the creation in the present time. And so... And we experience that, and we don't maybe use these terms, but we experience it because every time a tornado hits, destroys somebody's livelihood, we groan. Uh, and uh, and so there's the sufferings of this present age are intimately tied to the creation. Death, suffering, sickness, disasters, all these things that cause us trouble. And so, uh, and the way he's describing it is it's like creation wants that to end too. And I think that's really cool. So, um, anyway, that's a little off the subject, but I, th- I think it, it plays into this notion that uh, the, at the end of all things, it's not just that God's going to kill off the present world and start a new one. It's a restoration of the present world. It, the, this, this present age gives birth to the age to come. <clears throat> so... Um, so there's a connection between the two. Any thoughts about that before we move on? Okay. I, I think this lies behind just about everything Paul wrote. I mean, he may not be as explicit as, as, as it is here, um, but you find it uh, frequently um, in almost, I, wanna, I don't know if I want to say every passage. Um, actually, well, let me come back to that because let's look a little bit at, at the Apostle Paul and then, and, and then we'll look a little bit at how he wrote. And, that, and then we'll come back to that notion that this is, all, is everywhere. <clears throat> um, okay, where did Paul come from? Tarsus. Tarsus. Yeah. Tarsus, is that in Israel? No. Everybody say no, please. <laughs> yeah. It's up in, let's see, what would be modern day Turkey. I don't know if it would be in Syria. I don't think it is. It's on the other side of the mountains. Um, it's in Asia Minor. Oh. It's in Far East Asia Minor. And so, uh, if this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is Jerusalem here, and there's mountains here, and Tarsus is like right there. And so, but there is a very large library there. Yeah. Second only to Alexandria. Yeah. Um, so he had a very strong education. You can kind of see that in his in his writings as well as in the Book of Acts. He's always quoting from pagan philosophers and stuff. Um, that I shouldn't say always, but he does. He's able to, which suggests he's got a very strong um, education growing up. Um, and he also speaks uh, Greek very well. Um, his writing is is very complicated. He's not the most skilled writer in Greek in the New Testament. That would that would go to Luke, but he's certainly very capable. But 
he also mentions that he is born of the Hebrews. And when Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3 about his ability to boast in the flesh, he doesn't talk about his claim to being a Roman citizen. He claims to be uh, of, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's his, it's his Hebrew heritage that gave him the most uh, pride, if you will, and because that, that's the pride he had to throw away to find Jesus, <laughs> if that makes sense. So Paul's got a Hebrew name, um, which is Saul, basically, um, born uh, of, the Benjamin, uh, of the Benjamites, so, which also Saul was uh, tri- from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was able to address the uh, Jerusalem audience uh, in Acts 21 in Aramaic. The angel that spoke to him when he, when he converted spoke to him in Aramaic, which suggests that that was probably his first language. So in other words, he was very, um, very Jewish. He was more Jewish than Gentile. But can you imagine him being called by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, how both aspects of his background might be useful? Does that make sense? In other words, who, who do you want? If you want to take a very Jewish gospel and present it to a Gentile audience, who do you want to be able to do do that? Somebody who understands all of the Jewish background. But also bridges across the yeah. culture. Yeah. But why do you take Peter, who was a fisherman, and have him go to the Jews? Yeah. I, I was reading a book recently, which may or may not be... That, that um, the Jews were much more educated than most of us would think because they all had their synagogues and the little boys were sent because they could read. They could read Hebrew if they mm-hmm. were called up to read at the synagogue and everything. said so that they were much more uh, educated than most of us would figure. At least that's, that's what this book was claiming. Um, Anne, Anne Spangler uh, sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus and that one of the favorite occupations, supposedly, at the time, uh, was arguing um, theology, points of theology, points of the points of Torah, and um, so maybe he's not as ignorant as most of most moderns would think him. At least in the subject he was commissioned to take to the world or to the. Yeah, now, now Peter, it's interesting when, was in Acts chapter 2, when the Jewish authorities look at the, the apostles and they say, who are these people, these uh, unlearned men? Which, uh, I mean, we know from rabbinical tradition that you would stay under the tutelage of a, of a rabbi. Well, the disciples were all under the tutelage of a rabbi for three years. So they, they got a lot of education. But it's interesting to me that... Uh, that they would say it that way, which suggests that they may have discounted Jesus as a rabbi. So they must have been unlearned. Something of that. We're in the great city of Jerusalem, and we know it all. You and Jesus spent a lot of his time in Galilee. Yeah. <coughs> so you guys wouldn't know, wouldn't know what we know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, there's probably some truth to that. And so, but I do think it's fair to say that he chose people that he didn't choose a bunch of rabbis. Mm. You know, he chose regular fishermen, regular people. Now, they may have been well-educated, but compared to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not have been. And so he, he, he chose them, I think, because of that, and then gave them three years of 
in-depth training, whereas Paul, uh, he didn't choose Paul until after he rose again. So I think he picked somebody that already had the Gentile background, um, well, both both backgrounds. In fact, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the traditions that have been written down by the Jews into the Mishnah, and the, um, but Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, was is actually mentioned in there. He's a he's a big dude. If you, yeah, he, he was he was he had one of the, he had the best teacher that he could have had in Jewish tradition. So, hmm. well, that kind of makes sense to me. The whole picking the apostles, who they were, they were just people of simple means, more or less, most of them. Um, so that um, when other people see what they have and are and are sort of confused by it, or it's like they have something that came from somewhere. Where did that? What is that? Um, it, it it humbles the smarter people, or uh, or the people who observe it, who are supposed to know this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, so that they would actually be attracted to it, but wouldn't have a cult of personality about them. And it's like, oh, so they are the ones who actually lead this whole movement. Like, if Paul was one of the apostles or something, that might have been a completely different story. Mm-hmm. Instead, Paul had to go talk to the apostles to actually learn from them what Jesus said then eventually correct Peter later but (laughs) yeah (laughs) right great Uh, now let's one thing that and then here I want to get back to this notion that oftentimes people feel like Paul was just this esoteric guy who had nothing practical to say at least in the first half of his letters and what I would really like to you know if I got nothing else across (laughs) Today, this next little section here, Paul is a missionary theologian. I really believe Paul was a missionary at his heart. Well, that's the word apostle is just uh, the Greek word for the Latin word, Latin word missionary. It's the same thing. That's how they, that's where an apostle was translated missionary, which is why a lot of the early Protestants uh, didn't believe that. Um, there should be any more missionaries because they weren't saying that we shouldn't go anywhere and share the gospel. They were just saying there's no more apostles. Anyway, if you're familiar with that whole controversy. Um, But that happened early in the Protestant tradition. Anyway, but Paul was a very very, uh, good missionary and he traveled around all over. I mean, if this is I mean, if this is the Mediterranean world and uh, this is a, a very uh, two-scale representation of the Mediterranean world here. So Paul, Paul, uh, this is Antioch up in Syria. He spends time here. He goes up through here. These are all his missionary journeys. He goes through here, through um, and into Greece, and then that's his second, uh, third missionary journey. And then second and third, basically, he ends up there. And then when he uh, makes it back to Jerusalem, he ends up getting sent over to uh, Rome and gets imprisoned there. And uh, apparently made a fourth missionary journey, if we can imagine, from the pastoral epistles where he came back here. Because it says, he says, I'd love to come back to you. Um, so, so it's possible that the, the, the uh, pastoral epistles reflect... Uh, a fourth missionary journey after the book of Acts. 
But basically, he was over the entire Mediterranean world. He was all over the place. And he planted churches everywhere. And he discipled people. He trained leadership. He installed elders and deacons. But, I mean, he spent, he spent two years in the, in the city of Ephesus. Well, how do you, you know, then you're gone someplace else. How do you maintain a connection with these churches to make sure that they stay faithful? Leave a guy there or letters? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he did. He developed a missionary band of people. If you read his letters, you can find about 15 people by name anyway that were part of his mission agency, if you will. Uh, That's maybe not the exact right term, but it certainly uh, is fair to say that he was developing a network of missionaries that not only would um, uh, help him evangelize, but also stay in churches and help disciple the churches, Timothy, Epaphroditus. um, All these guys were helping him do that, and they would come back to him wherever he was, especially when he was in prison and couldn't go anywhere, and give him news. And a lot of these letters were response to news that he had gotten from others um, there's, a, there's a few of them that aren't but a lot of them are and so it's just about every and in really every single letter is written in response to some sort of either crisis or situation that the church was facing and it had to be addressed and especially when Paul was in prison he couldn't just go and so he would write letters and send them with these people so 1 Corinthians is really fascinating because he will. Um, it's, it's actually structured entirely by the correspondence that he had gotten from the church, um, and so uh, that to say that, in a sense, he gave the churches exactly what they needed to solve the problems they were facing to maintain a healthy church. So he was deeply interested in being practical. Um, but we don't always notice that. Because, <laughs> because that is good word we for see. Because he goes kind of. Yeah, you get back, lost in the sentence somewhere. Yeah. Refers back to things he said, and so many times it gets confusing. Yeah. It sounds more like a speech than something that should be written and read like to yourself. It sounds more like a speech, like you should memorize what he read and then just sort of break it up and say it as if mm-hmm. it was like a speech or a poem or something. Because mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you've got to anticipate all these spots where he suddenly stops, goes way up in the stratosphere of saying something broad and general and then coming back down to what he's actually saying. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. He writes like he talks. Yeah, he has asides. Yeah. And there's probably a good reason for that um, because... He probably he had dictated a lot of his letters, and so he was probably speaking when he dictated them to whoever, whoever it was. And and also, uh, I'm sure he intended for them to be read in church, so they're gonna they're gonna have kind of a sermonic quality to them. Hmm. So, a kind of passionate, persuasive way of <coughs> speaking mm-hmm. instead of writing like a professor or something. Yeah. Somebody who, likes, information. somebody who likes to make bullet points and actually show them. Yeah. I mean, like what we do. What we do. <laughs> That's right. He did not do this. No. <laughs> he did Why not do that. Why are you so hard to understand for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, 
there's a sense in which, and, and this is true for any ancient writing, uh, we can think of it in a sense like, uh, well, well, let's put let's, this is a, this is the world, and there's as uh, think of the world of time, but it's got it's got here a little. Think of the world of time as if, as if it's uh, as if it's circular like the Earth, and Paul is, is is here, and he has written a book, and we are here, two thousand years later, and we're trying to read the book. Does that make sense? And uh, we're trying to trying to understand it, where it came from. We can read the text, no problem. But what do we understand about the book is, some, is limited because we have different cultural backgrounds, we live in a different time, different language, all this kind of stuff. And it's not like we don't understand anything, but it's almost like, you know, as we try to see it, we, we, we can see here. Right? <clears throat> now, Paul saw it here. Um, so there's overlap this part here is stuff that I can see and Paul can see there's stuff that we understand does that make sense? this is an odd way of saying it but there's also stuff here that about the scriptures that I can't see but what happens when I learn about uh, Mediterranean history or if I learn about ancient Greek, or if I study Paul's other letters, so I learn a little bit more about his makeup, it's kind of like I get to, figuratively speaking, move up here. And now that I've moved up closer, ooh, look at that, I can see more. And if I learn even more, I get to make what I can see versus what Paul is seeing more like each other. And we never really, you know, it would be great for us to get right here, where I can see him directly. And I don't think that's going to happen until Jesus comes back. <laughs> but we can see more and more and more. And and that's where I think, yeah, sometimes it just seems convoluted. Sometimes it seems strange that Paul would write this way, uh, that he would say these things in this way. And And a lot of that is simply because well, it's strange to us because we think very differently than they did. And the more we can learn to uncover that, the more that this stuff can start to make more sense. And I, re- I really believe we can... I mean, we, may, we may not be able to get here where we can see Paul face-to-face, but we can certainly get over here where we, we really do kind of know what Paul's getting at. Even if we disagree over the interpretation of particular passages that Paul wrote about. It's interesting for me as I, in my job, I go from seminary to seminary and I um, I sometimes record interviews on on, uh, points of theology. And at Third Millennium, we we don't, we're Presbyterian, but we don't limit ourselves to the Presbyterian tradition with these interviews. And it's, it's really kind of exciting to see how, you know, I'll go to a Baptist seminary, a Methodist seminary, a Lutheran seminary. And they're all saying basically the same thing about Paul and all this kind of stuff. 
Yeah. If you ask about particular things, like is there going to be a rapture prior to the second coming and all that kind of stuff, well, then there's all sorts of disagreement. But those are on like these incidental little things. When it comes to these big picture, this is what Paul was getting at. It's amazing to me how much similarity there is between us. So it was encouraging to me. And uh, so it, that tells me that as a church, you know, we've been progressively moving this way. And maybe we're here now. I don't know how much farther we'll get. But I don't think we'll get this far. <laughs> Not until Jesus comes back. <clears throat> so, yeah. One thing I read said an additional problem in us understanding it is the writers were very Hebraic. And even if they're writing in Greek, they're thinking. With a, with a Jewish background and any language group sets the way people think the way they express themselves yeah that's that true complicates it because they're translating it they may know Greek very well but they're still trying to translate a thought from Hebrew in their mind or Hebrew thinking into Greek yeah that's true for a lot of the New Testament uh, I think per- less so for Paul than for Matthew hmm. Um, and then Luke would be the exception to the rule. But Luke actually spoke with very, very um, high-quality uh, Greek that shows no real evidence of um, of Hebrew grammar in the background. But yeah, you find that's a little bit in Paul and uh, in a lot in Matthew. So it's kind of a continuum. But that is very true, and it does cause problems. So... One thing you do find in Paul that's interesting is you'll find that he quotes the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew text. So, because he's writing to a Gentile audience that speaks Greek, and if they're going to open up their Bibles, they're going to be reading the Septuagint. So, he almost always quotes the Septuagint. <clears throat> Would that have been what he read coming from Tarsus? You know, well. This is a huge discussion because you w- we would think that the Masoretic text, which is the name we have for the Hebrew for the Hebrew manuscript, would be older than the Septuagint. But in fact, the, ma- the manuscripts we have for, this, for the Masoretic text date to around 900 A.D. And then we have we have a bunch of manuscripts uh, from like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things that date much much older. Uh, around the time of the Septuagint, but the Septuagint actually is around 200 B.C. So it actually reflects a much older manuscript tradition than than the Masoretic text. And so it's very difficult to know at times when Paul quotes the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. Is that because the the, the, the Septuagint was different from the, from the Hebrew text that he had? Or is it simply that uh, after Paul quoted the, his version of the Hebrew Bible, it changed a few times and became the Masoretic text. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, a, it's, a difficult, it's difficult to figure out how and why Paul dif- differed from the Masoretic text that we have. It could simply be that Paul was quoting a more reliable text than we now have. And it may have been Hebrew. He may have been translating something in Hebrew. Um, but a lot of times it's the same as Septuagint. Of course, there's lots of different versions of the Septuagint as well. So it's it's not it's not easy. So, but we know he was quoting a very reliable text 
that had exactly what God wanted to have in the New Testament. <laughs> so, what time is it? I don't want to go too late. Okay, let's look at um, a couple scenarios here so we can see. Uh, what I want, you, want us to see is that this diagram holds true and that Paul is also being very practical. <clears throat> and uh, we don't have time to go into all of this uh, for each of these letters, but I'd like for you to see a contrast between Galatians and 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and uh, and that, that should I, uh, hopefully let us see how Paul is operating as a missionary, but also in this time frame. He's a, he's a Jewish Christian missionary. <laughs> All right, so what's the big problem in Galatians? Legalism. Legalism, yeah. Because what did they want? Uh, what did the people in Galatia, Christians in Galatia, believe that was necessary to do? Circumcision. Yeah, they had to get circumcised. If you're going to be a Christian... You have to be circumcised. Okay? And Paul says, uh uh-uh. uh. That's not true. Now, he could have written a letter and said, um, I'm saying that's not the case. I'm an apostle. Just listen to me. And he could have could have done that. And, and he borders on that a little bit. I mean, he does say, you know, if you listen to me, because if you listen to these guys, then they preach a different gospel from me, um, let them be condemned. And so there is a strand of that, but he doesn't leave it there. He's not just going to assert his authority as as an apostle to say, uh, I have this connection with Jesus, and he revealed to me that you shouldn't be getting circumcised, so don't do it. He wants to make argumentation to show that his view of things is consistent with the scriptures. But can you see the practical implications of this letter? I mean, what would it do to the Christian mission if every convert, every male convert, had to be circumcised? A lot fewer. <laughs> you know? I mean, just in real practicalities, I mean, yeah. It would, that's exactly what would happen. It would, it would, well, at least humanly speaking, it would kill the movement. So it was, if, if, it's, if God was requiring it, that's one thing. But if God isn't, don't throw that up as a roadblock. Don't make an obstacle out of something that doesn't need to be an obstacle. And so, this is an incredibly practical issue. It has to, it, and it has to be resolved if the church is going to grow and continue. And so, but as you can imagine, uh, it's not easy. I mean, we 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 live in the wake of this letter, so we know that Paul must have been right, and so we believe him. But if you grew up in the in the Jewish world, and you know you read the, you read your Bible, and you know that God told everyone to have the, their male children circumcised. You know what happened to Moses when he did that among you and yeah. the servants, everybody. Yeah, and it, and it's not like Jesus said uh, to his disciples, uh, "After I rise again, don't worry about the circumcision bit anymore." This was an issue that crept up after Jesus' resurrection that Jesus never addressed. Um, and we know that Jesus was circumcised himself. So, I mean, it's very understandable that people would say, "Well, why would that stop?" <clears throat> and one of the big reasons, one of the big things here, uh, is 
do you have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Or can you be Gentile and be a Christian? In many ways, that's the, that's the crux of the debate. In order to become a Christian, do you have to become a Jew? And so, this is huge. <clears throat> and so, um, Paul says a lot of things in here. Um, if you look on the second bullet point under 2.2, um, where he talks about the gospel in historical terms. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, we've been rescued from this evil age. And we have, uh, oh, he says in, in chapter 3, verses 15 through 24, before Christ we were immature children, he says, and needing the law as kind of a disciplinarian to make sure we didn't get out of line. But now that Jesus has come, we don't need the law to be a disciplinarian for us anymore. The law that now can be our, our guide in a different way. This is very much in line with what uh, Jeremiah has said, that he will write the law on our hearts. It's not so much that the law is now this external disciplinarian, it's now it's written on our hearts. And so we don't need the law in the same way that we needed it before. Similar to what you, you know, when you raise your children, do you tell your three-year-old, go ahead and play in the street? No, you make a rule. You say, don't cross the road, right? Now, if your child gets to be 12, do you need that same rule that says don't cross the road? No, right? We say look both ways. And uh, when he gets to be 18, the rule changes again. It's, it's like... Right if you find work. Huh? <laughs> right, right, right if you find work. Or, yeah, and it, maybe even before that, it might be don't park the car in the garage if it's empty on gas. <laughs> You know, that is, you can see the same uh, principles at work. That is, we don't want you dying on the street. And, but the, the actual rule that you have to follow is, is based on the level of maturity of the child. And so, Paul's saying here, the church is kind of grown up now with Jesus because the law has been written on our hearts and all these kinds of wonderful things. We understand Jesus now. We didn't have that before. And in light of the wake of Jesus coming, the laws can be interpreted and, and applied in different ways. And so, don't get circumcised. Because that was going to foretell the time when Jesus came. It's not to be followed afterwards. Now that Jesus was circumcised on our behalf, meaning his crucifixion, there's no need for us to be circumcised. So he, he goes into a lot of effort to try to explain that. Now, so... So think about the way he's describing that, though. He's saying, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has come, we don't need to be circumcised anymore. So if you believe you continue to uh, need to be circumcised, and and you're supposed to be here, where where do the Galatians view themselves? Before the cross. Yeah, they're living as if the cross never came. Does that make sense? Paul's letter to the Galatians is to take them from here and move them to here. To have a fuller understanding of what it means now that Jesus has come. It means that we have to reinterpret the law. We can't just interpret the law exactly the same way it was interpreted in ancient Israel. Because in ancient Israel, you lived in ancient Israel. <laughs> Today we're living in, in, the, um, in, in a very different world where the kingdom of God now has been spread out through all different people groups.
So, uh, all right. And for the sake of time, we don't have much time to go over into that more. Let's look at at First Corinthians. Uh, what's the problem in First Corinthians? If in if in Galatians it was legalism, in First Corinthians it's liberalism. Yeah, <laughs> liberalism, uh, libertarianism. That's this idea that well, you know, Jesus came, rose again, he changed everything, and so morality doesn't even really matter anymore. Go ahead, sleep with your stepmom if you want. It's okay. It's fine. There's no rules. Um, that's First Corinthians five and six. Um, so, so Paul's inter- it's interesting how Paul describes this um, and the way that he writes. Let's look at First Corinthians four eight because I think this is really telling on his mindset. And you have to get the sarcasm here. He says, "Well, look, you already have all what, all that you want. You already have become rich. You have become kings." And that without us, how I wish I had, uh, uh, how I wish you had really become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put His apostles on display at the end of at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle for, uh, to to the whole universe, to the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. You, we are dishonored. Uh, to this very hour, we we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated, and we are homeless. We work hard with our hands, and we are cured. We bless when uh, when we are persecuted. We endure it. I'm sorry. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Everybody <laughs> crawled under their chair. Right? <laughs> Just like. <laughs> <laughs> So, but notice the, the the number of times that Paul uses the term "already," especially in verse eight. You think this is all? You think you're already in the new heavens and new earth? You know, it's like for him, the, the the Corinthians think they're here, and Paul's trying to say, "No, no, come here. Now's the time to be the refuse of the world. Now's the time to." When persecuted, uh, answer kindly. Now's the time to give your lives for the sake of the world around you because uh, when Jesus does come back, it's going to be really bad for the world unless the world repents. And so we give of everything for the sake of the world now. We become the refuse of the world for the sake of the world so that when Jesus comes back, um, we can we can save as many as possible. And you are living here like you're already a king. Come on, <laughs> and uh, and so he's moving them out of the new heavens and new earth and into this overlap of the ages between this age and the age to come. And so much of Paul's writings can be understood this way, but also it's incredibly practical because, I mean, can we have a church where the church believes it's okay to sleep with your stepmother? Can we allow that to continue? Uh, people fighting with each other. There's factions growing up in the church where people are saying, I follow Paulos, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus. And uh, so there's no, no unity. My son played on a soccer team. He plays on a soccer team. He had a game yesterday. They played a team that was made up of 
of uh, Haitians, Dominicans, and something else. They spoke three different languages, Jamaicans. And he said that um, the coach, I didn't notice this during the game, but the coach said, if you watch them carefully, you would see that the Jamaicans only passed to Jamaicans, the Dominicans only passed to Dominicans, and the Haitians only passed to Haitians. And they lost the game. So we can't have this. We can't have these divisions. And so that's how Paul begins. We can't let this kind of sin continue in the church. It destroys the church. And so he's seeing the, you know, in some ways, the extinction of a church that he really that he planted, that he cares about. He doesn't want it to um, to go this way. So he had to write the letter. And but it it, it also brings into mind the um, the practicality of it because he begins almost every letter. Have you noticed this? Like, like especially in his prison epistles. Like Colossians. It begins with saying, this is a timeline, or the beginning of the book. This is chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, it's all like, look how big and wonderful Jesus is. <laughs> chapters 3 and 4, be good. Romans 1, 1 through 8, well, it's actually, I guess, longer than that. 1 through 11, is uh, who's Jesus? Twelve through sixteen, be good. <laughs> uh, and it happens over and over and over again this way, where uh, he begins. You know, if you only if you only have the be good, then uh, you end up like the Galatians. If you only had the, uh, isn't Jesus wonderful? Then you uh, you have the Corinthians, <laughs> and uh, and so Paul was always concerned to start with what Jesus did for us, um, and then apply that to the situations that they were facing, so that they could uh, learn how to live in the present age until Jesus returns. And that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Any questions? Any thoughts? What, what time is it? I guess we have time. Okay. Makes sense. Well, good. <laughs> I was worried it wasn't going to make sense because Paul's so esoteric. I was. I didn't want to be as esoteric as Paul. <laughs> but I think when you look at Paul in a broad overview. It's a lot, of, a lot more easy than getting down in the weeds on some of those passages. Yeah. And, you know, good commentaries can really help. Um, I hesitate to recommend this one because there's a there's a guy, N.T. Wright. Oh, yeah. I like a lot of his stuff. The problem is on the New Testament, and particularly in like Romans and Galatians, he's got a, a view of justification, the doctrine of justification, that's got himself in a lot of trouble. But he doesn't. But he's got this simple. It's like it's called every everyone series, and he's writing commentaries on the entire New Testament with that. And he doesn't really get into that stuff very much. In that, 
but it's and it, they're small, they're concise, they're well written. He's an excellent writer, um, and so I hesitate to recommend him because he's kind of controversial with the justification stuff. But aside from that, he really brings brings out a lot of this stuff in helpful ways. And so if you're reading Paul's letters and you want some help, um, he often is has got good help. Just don't. When he ever says the word justification, just be cautious. He's an Anglican. He is an Anglican. He's a very... um, In in a lot of ways, he's doing a lot of good. He's giving the liberal movement today a lot to think about. Um, And uh, so unfortunately, he's not Presbyterian, which they work on a little bit more to make him Presbyterian. But even you know even Baptists and and uh, Methodists I mean Protestants all over are having issues with his doctrine of justification. See, he he thinks that when Jesus returns, that we'll be judged by the whole life led, not just not the so that um, so that some part of, my, of the work of justification comes from me, and not just from Jesus' obedience on my behalf, and that's where he gets in trouble. Mm-hmm. We we and most Protestants will say that um, it's only Jesus, not us. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway. But other than that, he's got a lot of good things to say. I'm trying to think of another comment. I'd recommend a different guy if I knew of one that was doing a better job. But I don't know of another commentary series that's doing a better job, other than maybe the Tyndale series. Um, there was a commentary on here I downloaded Gill. Um, Gill? Yeah. Anyway, he, he seems to bring a bunch Sorry. of... All I know is... It's well, not Vince Gill, though. He seems to bring though. a lot of Jewish oh, tradition into it. That, yeah. That's the current trend. If I can say a trend. That in the last 20 years or so, people have realized that they've been uh, making the, the New Testament way too Gentile. Uh-huh. And they've been trying to re, re-understand, uh, augment that understanding of, of the gospel from a Jewish perspective. And as, that's, as that transition has been happening, there have been people that have done so in different ways. And it's, it's like any time a big transition happens, you don't know what, what kinds of beliefs should be kind of tossed out, what kind of beliefs should be modified, and which ones are meant to stay. And... N.T. Wright is, is in that whole shift. And, and I think for him, the doctrine of justification is one that needs to change, whereas most people, most Protestants anyway, have not seen it that way. And so, and most of the shifts that have taken place have really not changed the doctrines, it's just changed the expression of them, so that they, they just sound more Jewish in the way you describe them, but it doesn't really change the content. And so, and it helps bring to light certain passages that seemed kind of weird um, but when understood from a Jewish context they make more sense but they don't actually change the doctrines they just kind of augment them and I, it makes a lot of this make a whole lot more sense when you know the audience they were talking to Yeah, which is actually why I mean the more I hear about who Paul was talking to I mean of course he speaks this way Mm-hmm. He has to persuade them in a long argument. He can't, or in a long persuasive speech. He can't just 
lay down bullet points, otherwise they'll contest every single one with, right. but what about this persuasive argument that I have? Is he has to make a better one to anticipate that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's really important, uh, at least for me, uh, knowing that when you tell a story, you have to know who your audience is, otherwise you may miss whole swaths of the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his style of argumentation changes. Um, his writing style even changes. When he writes to people like Timothy and and Titus, um, his writing style changes, which is one reason why the liberals say that Paul didn't write him because the writing style is so different. And, and I think, well, he's writing to a person, not to a church. <laughs> he's writing later in his life. Uh, He's adapting to his audience. And he's had a really deep relationship with those two. Mm-hmm. He talked to them. Yeah, and the people he's talking to mm-hmm. are very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And his situation in life is changing too. I mean, especially in Second Timothy, <coughs> he's, he's anticipating his death. And you sound a little different when you're expecting to die soon. At least I would think. It's never happened to me. <laughs> so well great I hope I hope that was helpful next week should be even more convoluted because the next group of writings we're going to look at are not even written by the same person so a bunch of letters that were written by many different people so I'll probably have like categories of the letters to look at um but it'll be fun. Thank you. I found fascinating when you were, you know, trying, drawing that up there, the map in the back here. I looked at it um, with the missionary journeys, and you look at that. That would be stupendous for somebody now with modern transportation and modern communication. Oh, mm-hmm. he was shipwrecked twice. He did the whole thing. I mean, everything, everything he did in those days when the travel speed and. Yep. Yeah, I just, just wow. It's amazing. And then that somebody could find them. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which way did he go? I don't know which way he went. He got on the ship and went that way. After that, I don't know. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's amazing. It, it really is a it's it's a tremendous achievement what he was able to do. And um Imagine well, what he could do with the internet. He might have had the Holy Spirit's help. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, yeah, that's amazing. So. Um, all right. Well, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. Good. Thanks. Oh, um, is there anything in particular? Because there is such a diverse. Is there anything you'd like to concentrate on next week? Like the book of Hebrews, which is, or the book of Revelation, or hmm. anything in particular. Yeah, we have to do Hebrews to Revelation. And since I don't, I'll, I'll concentrate on what you would find most helpful. Revelation would get us lost for about three weeks, shouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Revelation would be one you could go over and over for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, isn't one of them written by Jesus' brother, supposedly? James? Yeah. yeah. We could look at James. 
Yeah. James that one I would find very interesting. Now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so James. So my examples will come from James next week. Okay. Who do you think wrote Hebrews? Hmm? Who do they think wrote Hebrews nowadays? Um, there's no consensus. I can tell you what I think. But what is that? It's not Paul. I don't believe 